0: This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazino, and
1: I'm Andrea Parkins.
0: On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients.
1: We'll also be speaking to the producers of those ingredients to talk about how they're made and why they're so loved.
0: I have a hard time saying fruit puree. Fruit puree I don't is know. Hard. I think we should is say it, that actually. Is it hard for it you is. to come like fruit puree? It's fruit puree. puree. It's like the, the F R and the P and the R. I always feel like I'm like fruit puree.
1: You have to say it slowly.
0: Did I say it better? Fruit puree. Try to say it quickly. Fruit puree. Pretty good. Fruit puree. I can't say (laughs) it. So I'm going to try to say it again. Fruit puree. Fruit puree. You're very good at that. This episode is dedicated to talking about fruit purees. And a lot of people at home probably don't know specifically what a fruit puree is or what restaurants are doing with them. or I think it's more of a restaurant ingredient for sure. It really is. These are, in the case of what we're talking about today, made in France. Boiron is the family. And they have fruits that they take. They don't add anything to it. No sugar, nothing. Puree it, put it into a tray and freeze it. And the chef's warehouse imports these products from France and then sells them to the greatest restaurants in America. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, there was this story recently in Eater magazine. About the Dan Barber About story. Dan Barber and Blue Hill Stone Barns. If you don't know who that is or what that is, look it up. But it's, you know, it is the farm to table restaurant in North America. And, you know, there was an article that appeared that was criticizing the restaurant for using frozen, you know, one of the chefs that was working there was surprised that a restaurant that was farm to table was using frozen fruit fruit purees and it actually caused the person to resign from working at the restaurant. She was so disenchanted that they weren't using fresh fruit in their recipes that she left. And I saw this and I was like
1: I saw it too and I just kind of took a step back and thought there's a a little like lack of knowledge there in terms of ingredient sourcing that this person had just because if you think about the staples, flour or olive oil or salt, you're not, you know, yes, you could maybe mill your own flour for certain things, but for bulk purposes, you're not milling your own flour. You're not making your own salt. There's no, olives are not, they're seasonal. Right. So you have to buy these things from distributors.
0: Yeah. Well, let's just talk about the fact, let's let's talk about strawberries. Strawberries do grow in New York. We're blue Hill exists, but there's a very short growing season. Like if less you than go, a month. If you live in America and you go to a supermarket and you buy strawberries or you go to your favorite produce store or wherever it is that you're buying strawberries, they are coming from Florida or California mm-hmm. nine times out of ten. Yeah. When you if look if you at- live in New York and you go to the farmer's market. There is a very short window of time when you can get strawberries at the farmer's market. You know, and again, the naivety of this you know person saying, I can't believe that they were using frozen fruit purees. Well, here's a heads up to everybody. Almost all great restaurants use frozen fruit purees, either in their pastry applications or their bar chefs or their mixologists of are using cocktails. They are not taking fresh mangoes and pureeing them every day. No. I mean, they will to an extent. And there is, don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place. Fruits are used in restaurants, but the purees are so important to restaurants that I don't think people realize it.
1: I don't think so either. And you talk about consistency and you talk about wanting to put out the best product. You want to procure that ingredient when it's at its you know peak season. So if you have a strawberry that's only available for a month, you, know, you want to be able to preserve that flavor all year round, you're going to buy a fruit puree.
0: Yeah. And quite frankly, the quality of the fruit in the fruit puree is, is better than you can usually ever find it fresh anyhow, because they are going to the best sources yep. in Europe, in France, and getting you the best product. So in conjunction with this conversation, we have one of the best pastry chefs ever to grace the planet in the studio. His name is Michael Lascanus. This guy won the James Beard Award for the Best Pastry Chef in America, I think, in 2007. Yes. He was the pastry chef at La Bernardin for like a million years. Yeah. Three Michelin stars, four stars from The New York Times. Super creative. And he's now working with Boiron Fruit Purees. So we're going to talk
2: to Michael. For people who want clean labels, they want a blank slate when they're creating a recipe. They don't have to worry about all that added stuff.
1: And we're also going to speak with Mr. Boron.
0: Alain Boron, the president of Boron Fruit Purees.
1: He's third generation? He's
0: the big cheese. Yeah. He's the big raspberry.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> he's we're, the guy.
1: We're going to talk to him all about the history of Boron, um, why their purees are, you know, kind of the, the standard in the industry, and just learn more about the process and, you know, why, why they're so good.
3: So we've got uh, this passion from fruit going from generation to generation.
0: Yeah, he's going to be calling us from... From France. From his beautiful offices in in southern France.
1: I'm excited for this one, John. Great show. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media.
0: I'm salivating from what I just put in my mouth, Andrea.
1: That was one of the most delicious bites, fruity sweet, caramely bites I've I, ever had. I love
0: a guest who shows up with amazing, delicious things.
1: He is by far top three favorites now. Yeah. Michael,
0: so Michael Laskanis, who, if you don't know who he is, one of the most acclaimed pastry chefs ever to grace the planet, is here with us in the studio today. And he brought a baggie of Candy. homemade gummy bears, homemade caramels. And the last one I just ate was this like, raspberry explosion of flavor caramel made with boron fruit prairies, which we're going to talk about boron in a few minutes. But first off, Michael, thank you so much for coming here. Welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: It's so exciting. I've known you for a while, but the first time I ever like had a Experience like a Michael Ascanis experience was at Le Bernardin. You were the pastry chef there for what a decade? Almost eight years. Eight years at Le Bernardin.
1: That's such an amazing stint.
0: Everybody knows Le Bernardin. Yeah, you know I'm not picking favorites here. It's the greatest restaurant in New York City, if not if, for probably the United States. Three Michelin stars, four, four stars four, from the New York Times, yeah. and Eric Repair and team there do something really special. To me, it's always been about ingredient sourcing at that restaurant. There's a multitude of amazing restaurants around the country and around the world. But every time you would walk into La Bernardin for a meal, it was so evident the way the ingredients would pop from start to finish. They're vibrant. They're flavorful.
1: Even in the candy that he brought, like the boron purees. I mean, that raspberry one, the raspberry was the star of that caramel.
0: Yeah, it was so good. So good. All right, Michael, we're going to let you talk. Well, How would you describe your pastry it's it's not rustic it's not how, how would you describe what you're doing and how did you come up with your style
2: well certainly at that time where I was making that transition coming into Le Bernardin I, I think I was definitely inspired by French chefs like Pierre Gagnier where very complex um, lots of surprising combinations there might be 10 to 12 things on a plate and I think I think Chefs go through this maturation period where early on they have to show you everything they know with every, with every dish almost. Um, and then that's kind of where I was at that point. So, you know, as you alluded to before, there's something about La Bernadette that is simple, deceptively simple. Sometimes, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of work that goes into that sauce, even if it's just sauce and fish on a plate. Mm-hmm. So what, what I did is I adapted to fit that style. Cause, it's it's not my restaurant I'm I'm just following what's coming before. So I learned to become a little bit more minimal, um, certainly embrace that idea on the savory side, you know, the fish is the star of the plate. So I needed to have a star of the plate. So I kind of borrowed that, that menu style where each dish, the title of the dish was just an ingredient. And there's a couple of different ways you can approach that. It's how many ways can I manipulate this ingredient? So if it's apple, I've got five or six different preparations of apple to express all the different, you know, characteristics of that ingredient. Or it's I pick maybe two or three flavors to complement that apple. That was an important development stage for me, just going to that restaurant to learn how to pare down.
1: Restraint keeps coming to mind.
2: Sure. And and it's also just ego. I I didn't have to show you everything I knew. I used to joke that early on I could write an entire menu of six desserts in an afternoon because I only knew six things. Now that I know like 600 things, you know, if I'm if I'm working on a project where I'm designing a menu for somebody, it's much more difficult because there's, there's I want to include everything, but I know I can't.
0: Why did you use boron when you were in the kitchen? Because there's a lot of fruit
2: purees. I mean, I think like most people, I'm always going to want to lean into the green market, the local producers, using things in season. You know, here in New York, you know, peak strawberry season three weeks, maybe a month. And then on either side of that, you have inconsistencies. So what a a puree has the ability to do is to supplement that and to extend that season a little bit. You know, plus the obvious, the labor saving and... and the consistency from batch to batch, year to year, season to season. So that's a no-brainer, especially when you start to get into a volume operation. What what I liked about it was I like the fact that it's a family company, essentially, three generations in, 80 years. And they're very transparent about what goes into the product and pretty generous with all the technical information. The candies that you referenced earlier, those are highly technical and highly engineered. So I have to know exactly what's going into them. And I know that, you know, by using a product like Boron. I know the bricks level of the you know, the sugar content of the puree. I know the acidity if I if that's important to me. Uh, so all those things are really important to me, and 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 the flavors as well. And they're they're sourcing. They're going to use the best example of that fruit from wherever it grows in the world. And some, sometimes that's a disadvantage. I remember back in it must have been two thousand nine, two thousand ten. You might remember this. And there was a a crop failure of coconuts in Thailand, and you couldn't get coconut puree for four or five months. And that was one of my favorites. So that was a really painful period. And as we go into an era of climate change, that's going to potentially affect, you know, some of these crops as well. So I think
1: more recently, the raspberry puree in the last couple of years, there was like a big gap. And I remember customers calling us and, you know, they specifically they want the Boron brand, they almost had to change their menus or make choices because they weren't going to supplement with another you know, one of our purees because it's so great. But, you know, there are stop gaps now. Yeah,
2: but th- th- that's something interesting that I learned. You know, I learned, for example, that raspberries for peak flavor actually need sort of a period of of hot and cold. A recent season in Eastern Europe where most of the raspberries and, and Boiron's puree come from, it didn't get those cold dips. So the, the flavor suffered. We're going to see those, but they would rather not put out something if it's not going to be perfect.
0: Fruit purees or Boiron fruit purees are frozen of fruit exactly i mean pretty basic not really nothing else added to it maybe is sugar ever added to it
2: so so that's been a project that's that's pretty much complete now after the last five or six years uh where the entire line has been transitioned to 100 percent fruit no sugar added yeah there are still a few flavors strawberry raspberry coconut i believe uh they're still available in the sugar added option as a technical chef. That's that's really important for me. For people who want clean labels, they want a blank slate. When they're creating a recipe, they don't have to worry about all that added stuff. And some other comparable products might add a blanket 10% sugar on top of things. But yeah, I like, I like to say that it's everything but the seeds.
0: You mentioned strawberry season. It's a very short season in the Northeast, mm-hmm. as are many fruits or a lot of things are just don't grow in this area. And if you need consistency, you're going to be using fruit purees. And again, no finer example than, you know, maybe the greatest restaurant in North America is, you, you know, the pastry chefs there are using and the mixologists and the bar chefs are using frozen fruit purees. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that there was this story in eater.com last week. And I don't know if you guys saw it. It was about mm-hmm. Stone Barns and Blue Hill and and Dan Barber. And it was scathing, the most farm to table, sustainable restaurant in America. And it's all a sham. And one of the quotes in that story was from a young pastry chef saying she was so disheartened to find out that they were using frozen fruit purees in that restaurant.
1: Absurd.
0: I I just, yeah, you know, and I texted Dan Barber to to say, listen, I'm sorry you you even have to go through this, but is it even possible that young chefs don't understand or even the clientele don't understand that lemons don't grow in Westchester County and olives and olive oil aren't produced here and that that restaurant has never really made tell the story that, they were growing those things there. Right. And I, it really bothered me. I didn't think it was fair. I'm sorry I'm going off on a rant here. But I think it's important for everybody to know that, hey, restaurants are using frozen fruit purees. And in many cases, they're better than what you might find fresh locally.
1: Yeah, for all the reasons that Michael just said, in terms of consistency, batch, batch, they're sourcing the, the fruit at their at its prime. That's what you want to serve a customer, not on the basis of this, you know, thought that it has to be Locally sourced, locally grown. It's impossible in this region, I would say. I'm sorry sure. to go
0: off on that tangent. No, but I that's, think you're right. That John. article really bothered me. Yeah, and me they too. They specifically mentioned the fruit purees,
2: and
1: I was right. like, "This is a good forum." Come on, guys. Yeah,
2: it's not
0: a cop out
1: right? no.
2: using that. I mean, in, in some cases, like you said, that the, the quality is going to be better.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: So Boron, mm-hmm. the French company that makes these amazing fruit purees, you also have a you're their national.
1: Ambassador? I, I
2: saw something recently that said senior brand ambassador. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's about age or, um, <laughs> or
0: no, you're a young man.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I started doing some things. I mean, I was a customer at Boiron for 25 years now, but I actually started just doing sort of one-off demos with them. We kind of formalized that relationship maybe about in 2015. Went to Valence in the south of France to visit the factory, and ever since, I've been kind of growing that position ever since. So, senior brand ambassador, what does that mean? I um, create a lot of recipe content, do a lot of demonstrations, um, work a lot with the distributors, of course, uh, as well as the end users. Hi, I'm pastry chef Michael Lasconis, and you're listening to the Ingredient Insiders Podcast. How did you get into the world of food? Where did you grow up, first off? Oh, man, I grew up in suburban Detroit, Michigan. I did not grow up in any sort of gastronomic environment. Very suburban, middle class. If anything, I was actually a little bit of a picky eater growing up. What's interesting is what really kind of started to shift it for me. 16, 17, punk rock, wanting to become a vegetarian. So I learned early on that there's what I call a junk food vegetarian, which is just people who omit things out of their diet. But I learned early on that you have to replace things, right? So, you know, this is way pre-internet. So what do you do? You go to the library and you look up books that are Vegetarian, you know, cuisines that are vegetarian-friendly, so Middle Eastern, Asian, Indian, so that kind of gave me a little bit of a an entry into the world of food uh, and flavors and ingredients.
0: Did your family cook? Did your mom? Did your grandmother?
2: Yeah, yeah, but just
1: like meat and potatoes, more like
2: yeah, basically, yeah, basically, and um, that that's really what what clicked it for me. And then enrolled in art school was going to be a fine arts major. Uh, I was actually working and leaning towards photography at the time. In hindsight, I think kind of meshes with ending up in pastry. Both are are technical, both are a little bit artistic, but for whatever reason, a 19-year-old needs to take that semester off. I took that semester off, still in kind of the punk rock world, traveled around the country, slept on people's couches for six months, came back, still needed a job. My roommate's brother owned a bakery uh, in suburban Detroit, and that's what started it. You know, so it was really working with bread and realizing that you don't so much make bread, but you enable bread to happen on its own. Everything just kind of fell into place. And I, I can't imagine doing anything different.
0: Did you like making bread? Did you I, had I, you done that before?
2: Uh, no, no. So I, I love bread. I loved sort of that, again, that kind of mix of exactness and quote unquote science paired with the artistic creativity. And again, we're talking the early 90s. So I was devouring whatever information I could get my hands on. Imported books from Europe, Art Culinary Magazine, which was relatively new at that time. Yep. And I immediately kind of aspired to that haute Cuisine Michelin three-star level. And actually, interestingly, one of the the earliest issues of that Art Culinary Magazine that I I saw was uh, featuring Le Bernardin. Gilbert Lacose was still alive, so this was pre-1994. Uh, Eric Repair was the chef de cuisine and the pastry chef, a lot of people don't know, one of the pastry chefs in the early 90s was Francois Payard. Wow. So I ripped off all of Francois's recipes from that that issue of that magazine. I, and I've since told him that and he he, he left. But mm. So then I realized I needed to get into a restaurant. So I was lucky to find a very small restaurant in a little Victorian house out in the suburbs, a restaurant called Emily's, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, but the chef Rick Hallberg kind of took me under his wing. I started out doing all the garmage, cold stuff. And at that point, uh, they were buying in all of their dessert components. And I would plate them. So as I got better at my station, obviously you do things faster and more efficiently. Within a few months, I was starting to like, okay, I'll make that component instead of buying it. And within another six months, I created a pastry chef job for myself.
0: Very cool. And you loved it. Oh, I loved it. And then how did you end up in New York?
2: After Emily's, I worked at uh, probably the best restaurant in Detroit over the last 20 plus years, a restaurant called Tribute. Chef Takashi Yagahashi had come in from Chicago. He's now back in Chicago and actually started there as a line cook. But an early pattern was kind of jumping back and forth. But I think that cross training was important. Everywhere I worked, I put in five years. For cooks, probably one of the few professions where a long resume of short stints is actually not a negative. But I always felt like I needed the time. Like, let me bleed this place of everything I possibly can before I move on. So I stayed at Tribute for five years. Uh, I eventually became the the pastry chef. First time as a full-time pastry chef with the staff and all of that.
0: And this is all really self-taught. I mean, you're reading
2: and reading. No
1: culinary school, right?
2: Right. I I wanted to. I wanted to go to, I wanted to come out here to CIA or there was a great school in the Detroit area uh, that had a lot of certified master chefs um, on on staff. I just couldn't afford it. And I I just adopted this earn while you learn mentality it took me a while to get the confidence but i realized at some point okay i learned everything i would have picked up with formal training so we're talking like late 2003 and a mutual friend of mine and eric repairs said you know eric's looking for a pastry chef new york was always the end goal for me All right you know, maybe chicago san francisco at that time And i was like yeah if i'm gonna go to new york it's gonna be at like one star level you know not not the four star level just dismissed it out of hand a few months went by He's still looking for a pastry chef and and he had actually come to our restaurant a couple of times to do guest chef dinner so he was kind of familiar with what i did so i'm like okay you know what i'm gonna be in the city for another event Let, let's have the meeting so i, I met with the chef and 90 minutes later walked out with an offer so i didn't have to do a tasting or anything. wow six weeks later i Moved here and started, so that's May of two thousand
1: four. You know, you had this eight year, you know, career at Le Bernardin. Kind of transitioned. You started at ICE. Institute- what, what
2: made you leave
0: the kitchen? You won a James Beard Award in two thousand seven. Yep, best pastry chef in America. Mm-hmm. What year did you leave La Bernadette? 2012. What was the impetus for that?
2: At the time, what I kind of felt like is I had painted myself into this corner in the sense that I was working the 10, 12 hour days, of course. I spent eight hours of that standing in one spot at the end of the pass. I'm pantomiming, wiping the rim of a plate right now. Right. Um, that's a very important job at that level where I'm touching every plate before it goes out. But I was finding I wasn't creating enough time for myself to be creative. As just we we all carry around these notebooks and we write down ideas and I have you know stacks of them over the years and there was this realization that I'm, I'm never gonna go back and realize any of these ideas if I'm just working this way. Of course, I wasn't looking to make a lateral move to another restaurant at that level, that didn't make sense. And over the years as well, you know, one thing that, that I realized became important in my role was just being a mentor, you know, mentoring my own staff, but also we had trails and stages in on almost a daily basis and externs from culinary schools. So that became a really important focus. Like I realized I had that responsibility and to kind of give something back as well. I didn't necessarily want to be a faculty member in the classroom every day. I called up Rick Smilo at, at ICE, the Institute of Culinary Education. I'm like, what can we create together? What can I offer you? And we made up a role. Creative Director, which I don't know what that means in the context of a cooking school, but it looks great on a business card. What my role was, you know, it was a kind of a part-time role, was creating content and just sharing it with the world, uh, doing guest lectures for all of our pastry students, um, and then also revising the curriculum and teaching my own classes. So I really had a, a passion for professional development level, but I even taught some recreational classes for home cooks. That's been my home base since since 2012. In the interim. Uh, when the school moved from Twenty Third Street down to Battery Park City in a much bigger location, uh, we decided to add a bean-to-bar chocolate lab, which was an interesting idea. I was skeptical of at first, manufacturing chocolate from raw. Now you
0: rocks. have your own chocolate factory. Yeah, uh, essentially,
2: uh, no commercial <laughs> outlet. But yeah, that was a, a deep dive that it, you had asked me a few years before. Would I ever be manufacturing chocolate? I would have been like, why? Um, but that, that's become a new new passion. So that's about ha- almost half of my time right now is is that. And, and you know, we built a program of classes. So
1: yes, you, you've you formed relationships with farmers, and then you're actually fermenting the beans and then roasting and exactly what you said, bean to bar. But
2: Sure. So what, what I'm receiving in the lab are raw cocoa beans that have already been okay. harvested, fermented, and dried at, at origin. Depending on who's counting, somewhere between 50 and 60 cocoa-producing countries in the world, I probably played with beans from at least two-thirds of them. Um, and that, that's become a really you know um, interesting aspect of it, the sourcing and also yeah. this understanding the greater socioeconomic aspect of the cocoa industry.
0: I think this is really interesting for the listeners that we have because we have a lot of, obviously, professional chefs. We have a lot of aspiring chefs. I mean, there's a lot of messages already in this conversation. One is you don't have to go to culinary school. It's certainly great. But the other thing is that there's life after the kitchen. Yes. And that there are options outside of just standing there, you know, cleaning plates, getting ready to be sent out, which I love hearing this. Absolutely. Um and I know a lot of people will, will you know, get get draw inspiration from that. I want to talk about the state of pastry chefs in America or New York. If I think back, you know, jog my memory, go back 10 or 15 years, and I say a name like Francois Payard or Jacques Torres or yourself or Johnny Eusini or Claudia Fleming. I'm sorry that there's probably 10 other people that I'm not thinking of right now. The pastry chef in America in the early 2000s and the 90s was a personality. They were, you know, you included were, you know, well-known by the public, part of celebrity. I feel like in the last three to five years, that's disappearing. Is it me or is it, you know, yes, there's still Dominic Ansel and there's still, but I don't feel like we're seeing the same amount of focus given to the pastry part of the kitchen. That's and a great question. I'm just wondering if that, you know, I, I don't like that. And I'm wondering if that is a trend that you guys see too, or how you feel about that?
2: I mean, we, we could do a whole hour just on that. Yeah. Trend. First thing that strikes me is all those people you mentioned, they're still working. Yeah. You know, they're doing maybe different things than they were doing, you know, 25 years ago. One, one thing that I think has changed is social media in part um, and, and media in, in general has kind of segmented things where you can be like, you know, there, there's no dominant style. Whereas if you go back, it was sort of like if you weren't doing fine dining, high end stuff like that was the most important. So now I think we have all these little segmented styles that you, you can be really into. And kind of like not think about anything else. People maybe have their audience. I'm, I'm certain I could probably start scrolling through Instagram and find pastry chefs that are maybe not household names, but they probably have a hundred plus thousand followers. Right. The social media thing is really interesting. You know, thinking back to when I was coming up pre-internet, you know, you had to rely on print uh, to learn about things. And there's just more people out there doing things. But I also I think of it. As you know, young cooks today looking for inspiration, the internet and social media is like so amazing because they can see so much. Sometimes I worry they see too much. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of static out there. And it's just trends kind of come in and come out at lightning pace now. Being the old timer, I kind of like yearn for the days where like things were felt slower. They moved at a slower pace. But I mean, at the same time, I love seeing what people all around the world are doing in, in real time
0: we had michael white on here and he talked about something similar which was back you know in that day if he wanted to learn how to i don't know if it was carbonara sauce you know you had to go to italy to learn how that was made and what it was made today kids look at a picture of a perfect plate of spaghetti carbonara or whatever you know, pasta dish it is and go, oh, I can follow the recipe and make that and make it look just like that. And there is a lot lost in that. And there is... And
1: they can just Google sense, that recipe from Italy. Like they yeah. don't have to go. They don't have to... It's right. just immediately at their fingertips. And in a there way is something lost wasn't. in that. And I yeah. always
0: think, and you know, I just came back from a, a couple of days in Greece. And whenever I travel, and I'm not a professional chef, but whenever I travel, if there's something I eat there that I taste, even if I've made it here before, I am really focused in on how they've made it and these little nuances on the ingredients and all that. And then when I come back to make it at home, I, there is a massive difference between me knowing and having seen a photo of that versus experiencing it where it came from, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean,
2: I I, I use that as a similar example all the time. I was just teaching ice cream, the differences between all the different uh, fat contents of of American ice cream versus, say, gelato. And what a lot of people don't realize is gelato is typically less fat, you know, but it's like, there'll be, oh, I was in Florence and I had the creamiest, richest gelato. It was so decadent. There are reasons for that. It's, you know, it's served at a cooler temperature. There's less air in it, but there is less fat. And you were in Florence. Mm-hmm. You taste the same thing, you know, on a street corner in New York, and it's not going to be the same.
0: Some of the romance has gone. Some of the romance has gone. Oh, I'm with you.
1: I was walking down the street. I live near a Van Luen ice cream shop. Yes. And they just put a Dijon mustard ice cream out and I was disgusted. Yeah. And then in the, the same week, this week, someone sent me on Instagram, a Velveeta martini recipe. Yeah. And I'm like, this stuff is disgusting. People like, are going too people far. Are going, I think people are going way too far right now.
2: Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I think that's a symptom of, of kind of what I was saying before yeah, exactly. about the, the social media and the trends and like the, you always have to come up with something bigger and more extreme. I mean, and this is coming from somebody who like early on, you know, I wasn't the first to do it, but maybe an early adopter to play around with savory, savory ingredients and and desserts, of course.
1: And I think there is a place like, I'm not, believe me. I I think there's definitely a place, but I don't know, like, would you eat gray Poupon ice cream?
0: I'd put on my hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) This has been an awesome conversation. We know that Andrea does not like mustard flavored <laughs> mustard ice cream, ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure, and uh, we look forward to uh,
1: more conversations in the Seeing future. you again
0: soon.
2: Yeah, pleasure is mine.
0: This episode is sponsored by Boiron Fruit Purees of France. This is a wonderful day. Bonjour, everybody. We have Alain Boiron on the line today with us, Andrea. We're going to talk about the amazing Boiron fruit purees.
1: Welcome, Mr. Boiron. How are you doing?
0: I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So tell us where in France you are right
3: now. The company in fact is located in Valence. Valence City, which is approximately one hour south of Lyon. For us, it's the beginning of the south of France, where the sun is starting to shine and the sky getting blue.
1: Why did you decide to open shop in Lyon? What is it about the the area that speaks to fruit purees?
3: The the factory is located in Valence. It's a long story. In fact, the company uh, is 80, 80 years old. Uh, It was created by my uh, grandfather. Then my grandfather decided to move to Paris to uh, open a shop in the Paris market to sell fruits to the green grocers. Then my uh, father took over the company. And uh, when I took over the company 30 years ago, I decided to go back to the source of the family, south of Lyon, where we are located now. And so we are located there because it's a fruit production region.
1: What kind of fruits are produced there?
3: So mainly stone fruits like peach, apricots, plums, but also fruits uh, such as apples, pears, and uh, many others.
1: What I always found so interesting about the boron purees is that from what I'm being told about the process, and I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how the fruit purees are made, but you're picking the fruit based not on how it looks typically. I think that's when we go to the grocery store, we look at all the produce, and we pick what is most pristine, you're picking based on flavor profile and sugar content. Is that right?
3: Exactly. Uh, in fact, we supply the fine food people, such as pastry, chefs in restaurants, ice cream makers, mixologists. So all these people are not looking for a very beautiful fruit. They're looking for a good fruit texture, a very nice color and uh, a very good flavor. Selecting varieties that can supply this. And it's a key point for us.
0: What goes into the fruit purees? Is there anything else added other than the fruit?
3: Yes, you're right. Uh, What we want to do is to get as close as possible to the fruit on the tree. So it means that we will collect the fruit when they are ripe, because when they're ripe, they will have the best flavor and the best color. And then we will process them in our factory. We will don't add anything else such as uh, colorings or flavorings. Either we can have some uh, fruit puree, 100% fruit, or fruit puree with a little bit of sugar. Both uh, products in our range. But in fact, when we take the fruit, when we receive the fruits at the factory, we will sieve the product, take off eventually the stones or the seeds, and then we will uh, add sugar when the product needs it. We will freeze, pack it, and then uh, store it as long as the, the market will need it.
1: So you're adding sugar for consistency purposes? So this way, when a pastry chef or a mixologist receives the, the product, it's the same every time?
3: Well, in fact, our products that are with sugar added or without sugar added are both consistent. Uh, in fact, when we create the market, because we were the first one making fruit puree for a pastry chef and ice cream makers, we decided to add 10% sugar to get a homogeneous texture of the puree. But now with our process, we can do both with uh, uh, guaranteeing the homogeneity of the product. So we supply either with sugar or without sugar because the customer can choose what he wants.
0: One of the things I think of when I think about the Boiron Fruit Food Purees is how many amazing restaurants in the United States are using them. Whether it's Le Bernardin in New York, which I consider one of the greatest restaurants in the world, mm-hmm. with Michelin Three Stars, or Nobu restaurant group, they seek out, because you have such a beautiful range of fruits that are from all over the world, it makes the line so complete for so many pastry chefs. Talk to us about some of the fruits that you don't grow in France and how you procure them and how you come up with you know, what fruits are gonna go into a puree.
3: First of all, you're right. What's amazing with fruit, the range of color, all the color possible, except maybe blue. I think I still haven't found the fruit which is blue. Otherwise, you have the whole range of color from white to black, from red to green. You've got everything. So it's it's amazing, this possibility of uh, creation for the chef. Uh, what's also amazing, it's the the range of flavor. You've got a lot of different flavor. You've got uh, bitterness. You've got sweet products. You've got uh, uh, acidity. You've got uh, a- every type of flavor. Uh, of flavor, which is also, I think, a a source of uh, creation for the chefs. So it's linked to the fact that fruits are coming from all over the world, depending on the fruit. We get fruit from, uh, for example, South America or India. For example, India, we are sourcing our uh, mango. We are making the mangoes coming from India to us. Uh, In fact, we will go to India by the end of May to see the production to see the quality and to talk with our suppliers how we will uh, organize the supply of our factory in France. So what's amazing, for example, it's uh, a little story about uh, about mango in India. To ripe mango, they put it in straw. That way, when the fruit is in the middle of the straw, you get the heat inside yep. the straw and it gets ripened at the right point. We want it and we need it.
0: That's pretty cool. What's the number one selling flavor of boron? fruit purees is there one that is like the best
3: seller in fact it will depend on the country but globally speaking the number one is mango interesting number two number two will be raspberry
1: i was gonna say raspberry but for
3: example in france in france raspberry will be first and mango second in some other country you've got the opposite but globally speaking mango is uh is number one flavor it yeah. was not the case uh, 15 years ago it's amazing how mangoes uh grow in the the top chart.
1: How many different fruit purees do you guys make?
3: I think we have around 50, 52 different flavors. So
0: are there any combination fruit purees or Mm. is everything a single fruit?
3: We've got a few numbers of combination fruit purees uh, on the tropical, on the red fruit. Uh, But my experience is that uh, the number is decreasing because usually we, we talk to top chefs and when we talk to top chefs, they tell us, well, you know, I know how to make the blend. How to, I know how to make the recipe. So please give me single puree and I will do my own recipe.
0: Are there any purees that you're doing that are not fruit? Uh,
3: also, we used to do a, a vegetable range, mm-hmm. but it was not very successful. So we, we stopped it. Today, we've got uh, red pepper puree still in the range. Uh-huh. And we've got uh, pumpkin puree. So I don't know if pumpkin is a fruit or a vegetable. You can name it as you want. (laughs) That's funny.
1: (laughs) I recently saw you're launching a brand new product line, um, some fruit uh, coolies.
3: We're launching a couple of new ranges. Of course, we are launching a coolie range with uh, three different flavors. Uh, In fact, this product is quite popular in France. It's used in France for plate decoration in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Or ice cream decoration in in shops. We heard that uh, the the U.S. market was also looking for that type of product. I'm not talking of a topping. I'm talking of fruit about a fruit coulis, which is just fruit and sugar without anything else. But we are also launching a, a new range of puree in uh, on the U.S. market. It's uh, ambient line of puree, which means by ambient, I mean that the product will be shelf stable. It's for a different market. You can have chefs that will look. First of all, for uh, quality, the best quality regarding flavor and color, they will go on for the frozen range. But when people want practical product, they will be able to go for the ambient range that will be uh, on their shelf in their restaurant.
1: What is the shelf life for the, for the new ambient product?
3: For the new ambient product, it's uh, 12 months.
1: Oh, nice. So it's, it's good for storage. It's good for shelf life, ease of use which I think is, is right now user. is important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so tell
0: us about so, some of the support and some of the you know, the other things that Boron does to, to help educate chefs and, and across the world.
3: Yes, we, we don't sell only a range of products. It's very important for us to support the chef, to help them, to give them ideas, trends, for them to be able to create in all the ways possible for them specifically in the US, a real great network of brand ambassadors to help the chef to work, to be close to them, to be able to do workshop with them, to help them do, do that work uh, every day. And we have an uh, agreement with uh, quite a large number of, uh, of schools, such as uh, Le Notre, CIA, ICE. Uh, it's very important for us to be close to the students and to help them practice with a range of purees. It's also very important that our customers go through generations. So it's very important for us to be right at the beginning of the of the story of each chef and to, to be close to them, to help them, to teach them, to learn them how to use the product, to know the product, and to be able to do the best they can do with the product we can offer.
0: Obviously pastry chefs are using a lot of fruit purees, but the amount of purees that are being used by the bars and by cocktail it's lounges huge. is real it's tremendous
1: absolutely and i also know that there's a lot of breweries that are using your purees when they're brewing their beer which yep, is pretty it's new, cool it's
3: a new trend yeah well in fact start starting from u.s uh people trying to add new flavors in the in the beers and though they, they thought about buying uh, fruit purees to add color and flavor.
1: Are there any other trends that you're seeing or any kind of unique interesting ways that chefs or, you know, I guess bartenders are using your your purées?
3: Say some classical uh, classical use that can always be expanded. I'm thinking about ice cream and sherbet. Mm. And I think uh, there's nothing more beautiful than a wonderful fruit sherbet uh, with a strong flavor of sherbet and with a very nice color. Color is very important for everything, for all the use, because uh, when a customer is buying a product, first of all, he's buying with the eyes. So that's why we we focus a lot on the colors of our puree to get as natural as possible, as close as possible to fresh fruit.
0: Well, thank you again. This has just been a wonderful discussion. We are so grateful for the partnership that we have with Boron. This is really something that all of our customers value. Thank
3: Thank you. you very much to you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products discussed in today's episode on ChefsWarehouse.com.